Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Uncorked Corner podcast. You're here with Bianca and my co-host, Nick, and we are so excited to be welcoming Brian from BT's Smokehouse to the show with us, uh, one of our favorites. We are always visiting whenever we're in the area and uh, big fans. So before we get started, if you can just give us a little bit of background about yourself, you know, maybe how you how you got started in the first place. Um, my name is Brian Treitman. Uh, I'm the owner and pitmaster for BT Smokehouse. Um, BT started as a little roadside shack um, on a, at a campground in Stirt, or in Brimfield. Um, originally, I started at the Brimfield Antique Show for a week and decided that it was a lot of fun um, and then just decided to keep going. Um, so we moved the trailer up to the campground and worked there for three years before opening a brick and mortar in Sturbridge. Um, and so that was in 2007 that we did that, um, that we, that I started in 2010, we moved into the brick and mortar. And then since then we've expanded the restaurant twice going from 16 seats to 42 seats, um, and been named one of the number one barbecue joints in new England. Awesome. So how did you initially get into barbecue? Um, I used to do stuff in my backyard and, you know, like I'd go through my refrigerator and figure out what I wanted to cook that day and marinate stuff and then grill. Um, when I lived in, I lived in Napa Valley before I moved here. Um, I was out there cooking and I got a little smoker and my friends would come over on my day off with, um, barrel stays from the, they were winemakers. Um, so they'd bring some barrels stays over and we'd sit around drinking their wine and, and smoking a piece of meat all day long. Um, and it was a lot of fun. So when I moved here to Brimfield, um, I wanted to do something that was tied to the antique show. Um, and so when I was looking, walking around, I was like, there was nobody doing barbecue um, and decided I'll do that. Uh, at the time I was working as a chef in Boston at a restaurant called Spire um, that was becoming KO Prime. And um, I decided the commute wasn't worth it and I had a lot of fun doing the barbecue and, and just wanted to see how it went. To kind of get into a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of that, when you were working out at the antique show, what were you actually using for a smoker? You said you had a trailer. So did you have one of those big stick burners on a trailer? Uh, so I built a smoker out of a, an old oil drum. Um, and so if you, if you ever come to the restaurant in our parking lot is the original trailer that I started in, um, and the smoker is facing the parking lot. Um, so it's a little offset smoker. Um, I could fit about 400 pounds of meat in there at a time. Um, and so every day I'd, you know, load it up with brisket first thing. And then, um, or so I would load brisket first, but it was at the end of the night, um, and then pork butts and, and we'd let it cook all night. Um, and then I'd come in in the morning and, and pull it all out of the smoker. But um, I did pretty well out of that. I mean, I could fit a bunch of bunch of meat in there. Um, and at the, you know, I would have one, one shelf full of uh, brisket, one shelf full of pork, and then a shelf full of ribs. But. So I have been into the barbecue, doing my own smoked meats and everything for probably three or four years now. And yeah. one thing that I've always been curious about is how you learn from, like you said, sitting in the backyard drinking wine. That's, you know, where I'm at. I sit around, drink beer, yeah. smoke some meats, uh, scaling that up to be doing 400 pounds of meat. 
it seems like that would be a lot to take on. And that's a big jump to make. Well, so the, um, the first time that I cooked brisket, um, cause before I built this smoker, I had never built this smoke, uh, smoked a brisket before. Um, I was sitting around watching, uh, a TV, uh, something on food network and they were talking about brisket. And I was like, Oh, I could do that. And, um, so as we were building the smoker, I, I cooked one brisket and it came out. Okay. Um, I didn't, again, I hadn't even tasted brisket anywhere, like brisket like that before in, in California, they do tri-tip. Um, and so it's, they don't have brisket there. Um, but I was like, I can do this. It's, you know, whatever it's, it's barbecue. It's, I can figure it out. Um, and so the first brisket that I cooked was okay. Like I said, it was okay. I cooked it probably for like eight to 10 hours. Um, and I didn't know what it was supposed to be like, you know, it was like, it was, it tasted like roast beef almost. Um, but then, so when I did the flea market the first time, um, I, I loaded the thing up with brisket and as I'm pulling it out, I'm like, it was 3.30 in the morning. I didn't ser start serving until 10 in the morning. And I'm like, what do I do now? And so I had all these hot brisket and um, I'm, like, I'm like, do I get them cold and then reheat them? I hadn't thought any of this through. It was really like, I had a small panic attack. Meanwhile, I had like a whole bunch of friends hanging out that were like super excited that like the trailer was done being built and we were finally cooking on it. And so they're all sitting there and we were having a, um, a celebratory bourbon um, and I'm having a panic attack. And so I start like loading it into my refrigerator and I had a, I had a commercial refrigerator on the trailer and I look back at the refrigerator and it's 93 degrees inside of it. And I was like, nope, this isn't going to work. Um, and so then I realized like, it's, it's still not like it's barbecue and it needs to be held. Like I, I need to serve it hot. And I have a hot box here. So I just took everything and loaded it into the hot box and kept it warm for the rest of the day um, until I served it basically. But the brisket that I served that, that week was not what I served now. I mean, it was, so I smoked that, that batch for like 12 hours. Um, and I was like cutting it up and dicing it. And um, it was like brisket cubes um, compared to what I do now, which is, you know, the brisket we serve now is cooked for close to 24 hours it's got a really thick bark on it um a really intense smoke ring um and so it's completely different from what i originally did but i had i had no idea what i was doing the first time that i did this um, <laughs> well everything seems to start off that way right yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. you've come a long way and obviously have a lot more seats now and people love it so what are some of your fan favorites i guess that you any that you started with that people still you know that's it those are the staples or do you kind of just, depending on what's fresh and what you have right now, does it rotate? Well, so the, um, when I first started, the, the pulled pork was the mainstay. People out here didn't know what brisket was. Um, so what was this 14 years ago? Um, barbecue out here was still gaining traction. There were a handful of barbecue places that were doing well that um, they'd been around. But brisket really wasn't, hadn't taken off. Um, and the same thing with like the way that I did my ribs, especially right here in Central Mass, like nobody was doing barbecue. People's idea of barbecue was going to Applebee's or 
or um, TGI Fridays and getting a rack of ribs or, you know, pulled pork that was um, cooked in an oven and then in macerated in sauce. Um, so it was, really wasn't this thing that um, there was a lot of education that needed to go along with, with serving customers. Um, and so, like I said, when we first started, I was out selling brisket two to one with pork. Um, and now we're doing selling twice as much brisket as we are pork. Um, so brisket has really taken off. Um, the um, brisket Reuben that we do, which is our version of it's uh, our version of a Reuben, which is uh, our brown bread, Swiss cheese, a pickled rye sauce, which is my version of Thousand Island. And then um, our brisket and slaw is, has been written as like the number seven barbecue sandwich in the country. Um, and is, I mean, it's, we recommend it. It's one of our favorites. It's like one of the best things you'll ever put in your mouth. Yeah, I'm going to have to come pick that up. The Reuben, whenever I go to any restaurant, that's always like my go-to sandwich. That's what I always look for at first. So uh, I'll have to try yours out and uh, put it to the test. I'm yeah. excited. It sounds delicious. I've never had one set up like that. And I imagine the brisket is more of just like a traditional barbecue smoked brisket. You're just taking your brisket and putting it in there, right? Yep. Yep. Same so cut it. of meat, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we slice it. There's like half a pound of brisket on there. I'm a pile of slaw on top of it. And then um, I went to my baker and asked him if he could make me a bread kind of like Outback's um, brown bread that they serve at the table if he could make me a loaf bread like that. And so it's this brown bread that's like light and um, puts a really nice crust on or toast on it. Um, but so when you bite into it, it's like all of these different textures. It's really great. Another menu item that caught my eye too, and I was checking it out, was the uh, the Southern Burrito. That's oh, another the, one I have to try. Yeah, the, so the burrito was like, what happened was I would get bored with eating my own food all the time. Um, and so I'm like, how can I eat this differently? And so that's how we started the burrito. The burrito was like one day we were talking about burritos. There was no place around us to get one. I'm like, we've got beans, we have rice, we have meat. I just need to make some pico de gallo and, and we're golden. And so that's basically what we did. We, um, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's got all of that stuff wrapped inside of it. So like there's no, um, the sour creams inside, cheeses inside but it, it, all those flavors go really well together. And our beans are a little bit different than most other people's. It's, we use um, black beans and they're a little bit firmer, but they've got the like rich molasses flavor to them. And so with, I prefer um, for my burritos, I like the, uh, our pulled chicken and I put a little buffalo sauce on it. And so you get that sweet and hot in it. And it's really good. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And everything is amazing. I've, I've been lucky to try most of your menu items at this point, um, but I didn't bring any home for Nick. So sorry. Sorry, Nick. <laughs> it's a long drive up to Maine. I will say I can't blame her. A little far. <laughs> uh, but yeah, everything is really incredible. And I, I'm curious. So as someone obviously who does this for a living, you know, every day, day in and day out, do you find yourself eating, as you said, you get tired of things sometimes, barbecue almost every night, smoke foods every night, or are you still rotating that out with like home cooked meals that you're making? Oh, I, yeah. So I don't, I rarely eat at the restaurant anymore. Um, I cook at home um, three meals a day, pretty much. Um, I go in for the fried chicken a couple times a week and, and steal a piece of fried chicken. Um, 
but the um like and if i see smoked on a menu outside of my like when i go out to eat i skip right over it so like if somebody has like a smoked jam on their burger or whatever i'm like nope not having that today um but the the like when i'm in the restaurant it's totally different i'll eat whatever's there like I'll taste the brisket. I'll taste the the pork, all of that. And it's, it tastes delicious when I leave the restaurant and I don't, and I'm not completely surrounded by the smoke around me. Um, and I bring some of it home. It's, it's just overpowering for me and I can't do it. It's I'm just over it. But, um, but while I'm there, it's, it's awesome. Seeing the smoke stuff on the menu, something that I'm always cautious of too. And it's not from an overexposure like it is with you, but it always just scares me when I go somewhere and they're claiming to have this, <clears throat> these house smoked meats and whatnot. And I know I'm in their parking lot. I'm standing here, but I'd smell it if there's something really good smoking. I know, if, <laughs> you know, you can typically smell if you go to a good barbecue joint, at least in the surrounding area, at least in the parking lot, it's there. It's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I, and at our place, until recently we didn't have any fans or anything in the back where the smokers are and so the only hoods were right above the the cooking line and so it sucked all anytime you open those smokers up it sucked all of that smoke out into the dining room and so we had customers that would come in and they um you'd see them change their clothes in the in the parking lot to come into the restaurant or they'd get their food and then sit out in their car and eat and when we would talk to them about it, they're like, yeah, I can't go home smelling like this place. <laughs> yeah, it means you're doing it right, though. It means yeah. you're doing it right. Yeah. I had another question that I had. So you said you were working as a chef in Boston. So what came first? Did the smoking meats kind of on your own and that sort of backyard barbecue come first? Or were you a trained chef and then decided to pick that up? Or was it sort of hand in hand? Um, so I, I went to culinary school. Um, I got a, I got a bachelor's degree in science in geology first. Um, and then, uh, I went to culinary school. Um, I went to the CIA up in Hyde Park, New York. And then from there I went to, um, Napa Valley and worked in a couple restaurants out there. Um, and then I came to Boston and, and worked here until I opened up the, the barbecue restaurant. And it was really like, um, I had fun with fine dining with, you know, plated meals. Um, but there was just something about barbecue. That's like, it hits a sweet spot. Um, and it's just fun and it's, it appeals to the masses. Um, and I really enjoy it. I think too, one thing that I've really gotten out of it is the time that it takes to put it in there, especially when using something like an offset smoke that you really have to know the wood and know the smoke to get a really good result. That, the learning curve and the time it takes to put into it, it makes it probably more worth it in the end where someone else that's just walking in and eating it can enjoy it. But if you're sitting there and you're, all right, I'm putting 10 hours into this brisket, 13 right. hours into this brisket, you're doing 24 hours. Yeah. That time is going to be more rewarding on the backside. Yeah. Well, like the first time that I got the brisket, right. Where it was like you bit into it and it just like exploded with flavor in your mouth. And you've got like, you know, a little bit of fat dripping down the side of your mouth and, it was just everything about it was perfect. I was like, oh, that's what it's supposed to be. And like, there was like, the, like I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it right now, but it was like that, that feeling like, oh, I did this. And, um, and it is, it's sitting there babysitting it and, you know, and, and watching it and learning it. Um, you know, so like 
even the, I had this little charbroil offset smoker that I was working with and it took, I used to fight with that thing to keep it at temperature. Um, and then I realized I, I walked away one day and I caught the firebox on fire basically. And the whole thing like went up in flames because there was some fat in the bottom of the other one. But um, so I got it when I closed it all up, it was around four, 450, 500 degrees. Um, but when, it, so when I got it to calm down and get back down to temperature, it held temperature all day long. And what I realized was that I have to get the metal hot enough on the other side of the smoker, uh, the farthest away from the um, firebox in order for the heat to travel right and for it to, for the air to flow through there. And so from that point forward, every time that I started up one of my offset smokers or one that wasn't like built into the restaurant, I have to get it hot first in order to get the smoke to flow through the smokestacks correctly. Um, and, you, you know, it happened all by mistake, but um, from that, you know, it was like every time that I heat up a smoker now, I know that if I get it to the right temperature first, once I drop it back down, it'll hold that temperature the entire day. That's a really good tip. It's something I'm going to have to try out this summer when I get back out there and doing some smoking. But what I've done previously is the harder route than that, it seems, and built basically like an exhaust system into the bottom of my smoker with sheet metal and tin foil and try to get it to all vent right. But that seems like a much better solution to get it and kind of set it. I had a cheap offset too that I used for a few years. It was a char griller. And that's kind of what I learned on and did a, like a lot with. And I had taken like thermal tape and all kinds of stuff and just tried to seal it off and just get it to retain stuff. But no matter what I did, there was always some a pretty good amount of smoke leaking out of it. Yeah. And then last year I got an Oklahoma Joe that I used three times and it rusted out on me oh, and offset and had to return it. So I'm back to square one and I got to get a new one this year. So I'm also kind of fight with the idea of building one too. I do like that idea. It's something that I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, so I've built, we've built um, the one out of the oil tank and then I have two or three trailers that have different kinds um, so we've made some out of propane tanks, out of water tanks, off of cement trucks. Um, and then my first like trailer that somebody else built, we went down to um, South Carolina and picked it up. This guy has, or this, there was this place, Gorilla Fabrication, um, and they built these cool smokers. So it's got a firebox underneath it, um, but it's a reverse flow. And so, um, but it opens up like a... Um, a toaster on your counter so you pull it down like this and the top opens this way anyways but the um so we that i started using that one and it works really well and then we built a trailer that was like three times the size of that one um for doing much bigger events um and so we basically replicated that trailer or that smoker and put it on the on the new trailer um but it's every time I do, like we do one, it's, you know, trying, trying to learn how it works and what the sweet spots are. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's fun though. And when, when you're at home cooking and you're obviously, you know, really great at what you do, what are some of your favorite things to make outside of smoking and barbecue? Do you have your like essential cuisine that you make at home as well? Um, well, my, I'm, I'm a big fan of Asian foods. Um, so we do a lot of um, Chinese and Japanese kind of stuff at home. Um, Thai, curries, that kind of stuff also. Um, 
what else? Um, I also, I'm a huge fan of breakfast. So we have, I have um, 25 chickens. Um, I've got like eight dozen eggs sitting on my counter right now. But, um, and then this, during COVID, I got into the baking kick and started and got my own starter going and started baking. Um, so I was making all kinds of sourdough breads. I perfected sourdough bagels. They're amazing. Um, and uh, so me and my kids, we eat, we eat a lot of breakfast. I'm a breakfast yeah, guy too. Makes a big breakfast guy. Every every morning when I uh, when I want breakfast, I cook up some uh, nice, awesome like breakfast potatoes. Just yeah. salt and pepper, gold potatoes, low and slow on the uh, stove top with the cover on them, so they get nice and soft and steamed up, but they have a crust on the outside. Oh, it's so yeah. good. Those and some eggs. That's my daily breakfast. And uh, yeah, with the in the past year, I think everyone kind of jumped on that bacon train yeah. too, because Bianca and I both did as well. We did. Yeah. Yeah, wasn't as successful as you, but <laughs> yeah, I've had you made been some fighting good starters. I had a a starter that I had left for. It was two weekends ago. It was Easter. I came home for a couple of days for Easter, and I couldn't feed my starter. And I was just getting it going. I came back, and it smelled worse than anything I've ever smelled yeah. in my life. It was terrible, <laughs> terrible. So I got to get one of those going. I haven't gotten to sourdough yet, but I want to do it because we're also a big pizza family. And uh, Bianca is my sister, if you didn't know. So kind of have the same background there. And uh, we both diverge. And I make my pizza my way and they do it their way. And we all, everyone takes the recipe and changes it up a little bit yeah. as it goes down. But I have not uh, gotten to make my own good pizza dough yet that doesn't rip apart uh, when I try to roll it out the way that I normally do with one that I get from a pizza shop or something. So I you need to use... get a good sourdough one. Yeah, you got to use double zero um flour too yeah but i gotta get that and make my own pasta with that too yeah yeah yep. and you had mentioned that we well we talked a little bit about this before the call so for everyone listening we were chatting about what your favorite beverages uh that to go with all of this food that you're incredible food that you're making uh so you want to tell us about some of your favorites i know uh you you mentioned bourbon was your yep. Yeah, What's your so favorite? Bourbon is definitely my go-to. Um, I went on, uh, I used to, I bartended when I was in Napa on my day off and um, it was a big bourbon bar. We would, we would go through a bottle of um, Jim Beam pretty much every night just between the staff, mix it with our ginger beer. Um, but then uh, when I started like being able to, you know, start drinking on my own, um, I had some friends and they introduced me to Pappy Van Winkle, um, which at the time was relatively easy to get. Um, and so I used to buy bottles of 10 year old and 12 year old Pappy Van Winkle. And those were my mixers for Manhattans and old fashions and stuff. Um, but then when I, I moved out here and I started doing barbecue, um, I actually took a trip down to Tennessee and Kentucky and went and visited like all of the barbecue or all of the bourbon joints um, and all the distilleries. Um, I went on a trip with Yankee Spirits to go pick out four barrels of bourbon. And so we went to all of these really cool places. There were six guys um, and I learned a ton, um, but we were doing barrel samples in like these old rick houses. Um, and it was just like the most amazing thing. We went to uh, Willet, which is um, an amazing distillery. 
Um, but they, so Bourbon County is very incestuous. So like somebody buys somebody else's juice and turns it into their bourbon. Um, and, but as distilleries like grew up and then retired and died off, there were all of these barrels of bourbon that were stored in their rickhouses that ended up in all of these other places. And so we went into Willet and um, we drew the, um, the master distiller there. So he's fourth generation um, started tasting us on some of these things. And so I was telling him about this, uh, uh, rye that I had had, which was, uh, Black Maple Hills. And the bottle that I had was like the last year that they ever produced or bottled Black Maple Hills. And so I was talking to him about it and he's like, wait a minute, hold on here, come taste this. And he goes like into this back corner of his Rick house and drills a little hole in a bottle or into one of the front of the barrels and comes back with this cup for me. And he's like, here, taste this. And I was like, oh my God, that's like, how? And he's like, I'm not allowed to tell you where this, you can't take pictures of this. You can't know anything about this, you know, but we have some really cool stuff in here. And then he filled two flasks for me off of like just really cool stuff. One of them was like 28 years old. The other one was 32 years old. Um, but it's like the, Growing up, I would take little sips of my dad's whiskey, his scotch, and um, there's just something about bourbon that you get the sweetness from it, from the, the malted barley and the corn mash um, that's just different. And I don't find it as smoky as, as some of the other things that have peat in them also. So, Yeah, that's been a pretty eye-opening thing for me too. It, getting into scotch is that all of the different regions are so different. Yeah. Um, and there's a podcast, we had one, an intro to Backyard Barbecue Podcast and a Smoky Scotches and Smoked Foods episode of the Strength and Scotch Guys. And every month they do a tasting and there's they pick a specific one. So for last month, because of St. Patrick's Day, we did an Irish, we did Red Breast 12. Um, and we'll just pick one and they'll walk through, you know, what makes that region special, what, you know, flavors are in it. And getting into some of the other ones that I had, like my only exposure to scotch for years was like Johnny Walker. Yeah, That's it. That's what I thought of. But then I had the one that really changed my mind was a Glenlivet 12. Yeah. That was so completely different. That was almost more like it was. It, it's almost it's, bourbony. Glen, yeah. Glenlivet and Glenfiddich are, were my favorites growing up. Like my dad, when my dad brought those home, I was like, Ooh, I want to taste that. Exactly. It had, it has the sweetness. It's not too harsh. It has more, I would say a little bit more like fruit and a little bit less like vanilla and cream than I get from a typical bourbon, but yeah. just the flavor profile and the texture and everything was definitely, uh, that's kind of my new go-to scotch, I guess. Yeah. But right now I'm drinking uh barrel bourbon. It's a gift cast strength. That's what I've been sipping on tonight. And I love it. This is a, it's wonderful, wonderful. It's my new favorite bourbon that I've probably I guess at least have recently my other, my previous number one, which is kind of a cheap pick because it's like everyone's favorite was just Blanton's, which we got for our mother for mother's day last year, two years ago. And that was the best one that it ever had. But this is a, uh, it's up there. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. What is, so to get into that, what is your favorite right now? I guess, the common one, you said Pappy used to be the one that you would get for your cocktails. What's your go-to right now that you always have uh, on the shelf? 
so um, Four Roses single barrel, um, I think is, it's really well balanced. It's, it's really good. Um, or there's, or their small batch. Um, but usually the single barrel that they do, it's, you can, it's always got a little bit of a variation to it. Um, but it's, it's always really well done. Um, and like, it's, it's just, I can sip on it all day long. Um, you know, it's, it's not too malty. It's not too sweet. It's, it's not too acidic. Um, so. And do you have a dream bottle that you haven't been able to get your hands on yet that you have your eye on that you're just waiting until you can find it on a shelf or find it from someone that, you know, actually, I don't, um, I have most of those bottles that are the dream bottles. Um, so I have, I have the Pappy 23 and the 20 and the 13. Um, I got a, so Yankee spirits is right down the street and I have a great relationship with them. So then when they get really cool things in, they give me a call and they're like, Hey, do you want to try, do you want to buy this? Um, so, uh, one of them was, uh, Jefferson 30 year. Um, they, they were like 13 bottles that came into the state. Um, and I got one of those. And then the two big purchases I made in the past couple of years was, um, I showed you in that little video I sent, but, um, so one of them is, um, uh, it's OFC, it's from Buffalo Trace. So it's a, what year do I have? I'm gonna grab it real quick if that's okay. Go for it. So um, OFC, old fashioned copper. Um, this bottle's from 1985, um, or the barrel was from 1985. Uh, it's in this wooden, like cherry wooden box with inlaid copper. Um, and it spins around and the bottles inside here. And there were, um, so this is bottle number 28 of 61. So normally in a bottle of, or a barrel of bourbon, um, which is 53 gallons, you're getting somewhere around 200 bottles um, of bourbon out. As they age, you lose the angel share. And, um, and so then this was left, there were only 61 bottles left of this in that barrel after sitting in there since 1985. Um, the first time that they released OFC, um, the, they only released it to charities. Um, and the starting bid on it, was, I think, was like $3,000. Um, and so the second time they released it, they sold, they gave it to liquor stores to sell. Um, but, and so I got a phone call saying, this won't last. You have to say yes right now, um, if you want it. And so I did, but, um, it's, it's pretty cool. And then the other one that I have is, um, uh, Eagle Very Rare. Um, it's a 21 year old, uh, bourbon and it's got um, hand carved or hand blown crystal eagles in the, both in the bottom of the glass um, in the bottle and then also as, as a stopper um, and it's a very cool bottle the you open it it's like lit up so when you slide open the box you know the the light comes through the two crystal eagles it's pretty cool uh, are these bottles that you actually open and drink ever, or you just save them and well, let them appreciate? Well, so I'm really torn about that because both like 
if you go look this bottle up on like a, a reseller, it's going for like 17 grand. Um, but in my mind, like I bought these, I want to sh- taste them and share them. And like, they're, they're supposed to be drunk. They're they're yeah. So I will at some point open these up and, and drink them. Um, Are there yeah. any other like 30 year bottles that you have that you try that you'll actually get just to drink or when you get one of those you'll get something else so you can have something to drink and not <laughs> be tempted to open it up well so like the um i always have at least one of the pappies open um at least one of each year open um so uh there's an open bottle of 23 and open uh, all of them um there, there's nothing that i've bought that i haven't been willing to open um, this is the first one that I like, um, I don't know what the right occasion is to crack the bottle, but yep. I, I will open it. Um, but, um, yeah, like there's, there's a couple people that, um, there's a reason that you can't get a handful of the bourbons anymore because there's people that just hoard it in their basements. Um, and so there's this guy that we went on the trip with that's got like, he was showing us pictures. He's got 20 bottles of everything. And I'm like, what do you do with them? And he goes, well, I hold on to them and then I'll sell them to somebody else. And I'm like, but do you drink them all? And he's like, I've never tasted that one. And I'm like, what's the point? Like, what? That's crazy. Especially yeah. if you got multiple bottles. If you got like yeah. 20 yeah. bottles of everything, at least crack one of them. Yeah, crack just one. You know just what I mean? One. <laughs> yeah. I, I found it funny. I found out a few years ago, someone came up with like a whiskey index that tracks all the rarest bottles of bourbon, like the values where they're at and everything. Uh, and they're all just these bourbons that are probably sitting on people's mantles or yeah. sitting in people's vaults somewhere yeah. connected that are never to be drunk. Well, it's the same with, I mean, really any, a lot of spirits, I shouldn't say any, because there are definitely spirits that don't age that way. But even with like wines, you think about wine that way, it's like they sell out so fast when there's small batch vintages and you know, they just sit on a shelf forever and ever and no one opens them. <laughs> Someday right. someone finds it and they're like, geez, what has this been doing here all this time? Um, so it is really interesting to think about it. Like when, when is the right occasion to open a yeah, really expensive bottle? <laughs> I don't know what it is, but. That's the, when it's so limited, when there's only, you know, 60 something bottles of it. Oh, once it's open, it's gone basically. You know yeah. what I mean? So. Well, the, so the, the good thing is I have enough like open bottles at any given time that I'm not worried about running out of one of them. You know, like I can, I can sip on this one for a little bit and then I'll switch to this one. But um, this bottle, like once I open that one, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to have a line on it. Like at that point, it's like, I have one sip a year until, you know, they got to start giving you like a nip or something, like a little yeah. sampler in there with <laughs> it. So you can try it yeah. without right. cracking the actual bottle. Right. That'd be cool. But, um, so you guys are up in Maine? I'm in Maine. I'm in Portland area. And okay. I've had trouble finding a good selection of liquors up here, period. A lot of stuff you can't <laughs> yeah. get up here because it's all state agency oh, liquor yeah. stores. So they get like a limited. You're not that like, far. Everywhere us. you go has the same stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I always like going in Total Wine or wherever <laughs> I can. That just that might get stuff and get allocations and things that I can't find up here. We're in, um, we're in Ipswich and we're in Ipswich, Mass. So we, um, but Nick and I are both from Melrose, which is like a little closer to Boston. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, we've kind of, I don't know, now we're spread out and we've been all over. I mean, my fiance went to Springfield College, which is how we got familiar with you guys. Um, We used to drive just to come eat there. Uh, We just love the food. 
So when I, I haven't been out, out Western Mass in a while, Central Western Mass. And uh, the other day, I, we, were, we have Wormtown coming on the podcast soon. So we did a, a little brewery trip. We went out to Treehouse and Wormtown and I asked him if there's anything specifically he wanted referencing beer. I wasn't even thinking about food. And he said, yeah, go to BT's and get me a, like, send me a list of stuff. <laughs> so that was my trip. And I said, I was talking to Nick about it. We, we love barbecue. So we figured it'd be great to have you on, which yeah. you know, we're really, really thankful you came on because this was a great conversation. I think uh, everyone should check you out if they're in the area. Awesome. Yeah. And then like, especially if, you know, any of that beer trade kind of stuff, um, we've gotten really lucky with um, just being where we are that, you know, people go to Treehouse or there's, I mean, there's like seven breweries right around us right now. Um, but they all come to our, our parking lot and because we've always been BYOB. Um, so like when tree, when you couldn't drink at Treehouse, you'd go get your four pack there, then come to us, drink the beer and eat some food. Um, and then, but like the beer trays that happen in our parking lot is ridiculous. Like people driving down from New York or Maine, um, Vermont. And that's one thing I noticed that was uh, pretty wild. When we did a Stowe, Vermont trip recently, I took a detour like an hour out of the way to hit Hill Farmstead yeah. up and out, where is it? Greensboro, Ben, Vermont or wherever. And the license plates that I was seeing there was wild just like Connecticut Rhode Island New York Massachusetts like people from all over are going up to this little tiny brewery up in the hills of Vermont in the middle of nowhere and it was delicious beer it was totally worth it totally worth the detour but are you into the craft beers at all um a little bit beer isn't my my go-to um and really like I'm not a I hate to say this but I'm not a huge IPA fan most of my staff is um but it's it's not for me um you know i i prefer loggers um pilsners but um uh so when some of those breweries are doing those kind of beers i I gravitate towards those um but really i'm you know i prefer the the bourbon i don't feel as bloated afterwards and um but yeah it is nice to be able to sip on a little bit of bourbon, you know, just nurse yeah. it over a little bit yeah. while and uh, not have to worry about putting down like 32 ounces of beer. <laughs> <laughs> that's my, that's always my biggest struggle. I like the fact that all the craft breweries do the big 16 ounces, but sometimes I don't want to drink 16 ounces, but I want some beer. That's yeah. a, it's a commitment. You're going to yeah. feel pretty gross after usually. Yeah. Yeah. But um, the relate like I have a great relationship with most of the breweries around me too. So um, I was just talking with the guys from Wormtown about doing a pop up dinner at their place. Um, we do stuff with Treehouse and Four Treehouse on a regular basis. Um, Altruist is right down the street from us. Rep Scallions right down the street from us. Um, Oak Home Brewing Company, which has gotten a really good name for itself, um, is right right up the road from us. Um, it's it's a cool it's a cool place like right now where you know the junction of 84 and 90 is is kind of blossoming um and worcester too worcester is becoming a, a, a pretty cool city yeah they're popping up everywhere, and that was the biggest change moving up here to portland maine portland maine has in the area like one of the craziest yeah. craft beer seats like everywhere you turn there's one i think in like my small town that i'm in outside of portland there's probably like three or four right around me yeah. um so that's really that was when i started trying to branch out and get more into that and i always chalk it up to the same thing with whiskey where uh the other night when i cracked open this bottle of barrel 
my girlfriend's father had a sip and he's not a whiskey drinker. He doesn't really drink any liquor and he couldn't get past, it's a cast drink bourbon. So he oh, couldn't yeah. get past like the alcohol content to really get any of the flavors. He just drank it. It was like, Ugh, oh, can't do it. <laughs> um, but I had the same thing for the longest time with the craft beers, the IPAs and stuff where you have almost, I always said it tastes like drinking nickels, the hops, yeah. like it couldn't get past the hops in some of those IPAs. Um, but once I got through that and, you know, but with more session ales and like the lighter ABV stuff that's not as hopped up either, uh, kind of get past that and get used to it. And now I feel like with those IPAs and double IPAs, I get more of the good flavors out of and don't taste the bad that someone yeah. that's new to them does. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. With that cast strength stuff, next time you give it to him, give him a little splash of water in it. They'll make put, a huge he, difference. He put two ice cubes in it. So just and try it, it, try it with room temperature yep. water and it's that's, totally different. That's what I always do. I have a little, uh, a little water dropper yeah. that I put in mine yeah. when I'm sipping at home. Yeah. But that definitely. is, in, I feel like most people don't think of that, but we had that whole conversation with the, the guys and we had them on the podcast as well about how you shouldn't put ice cubes in it. You should just put some water in it. And then that's the real way to try to start getting that flavor and start tasting it the right way. Yeah, but the, it is pretty the, interesting. Yeah, the water will, will or the uh, ice cubes will mute some of the flavors in it, where the water will help make Put them off. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It definitely makes a difference. I've done that before when tasting stuff, and I tend to not do that more often than not. Probably more from laziness than anything. <laughs> but uh, I uh, definitely, definitely see how that's kind of the better way to introduce someone to it. When Bianca and I did a little whiskey tasting intro to whiskey episode not too long ago, uh, that probably would have been a tip that she could have used because she didn't have the best time trying four or five different ones as a non-whiskey drinker. Yeah. Well, Nick and I started this knowing what our, you know, tastes were and that mine was not that. I just never really gave myself the opportunity to try them, but I've warmed up to some of them, I think. We're getting there. It'll take it some time. <laughs> For everybody who's listening um where can we find you oh, we have to do the social plug where can we find you on social media and remind um, us where you are located since we are a little further into the podcast now yeah so um at, at bt smokehouse uh 1s is um our instagram um and i think facebook also um and then uh we also have uh at chicken and barbecue um, C-H-I-X underscore N underscore B-B-Q um, is our Worcester location. Um, and that's BT's Fried Chicken and Barbecue. That's on the corner of Park Ave and um, Chandler in Worcester. And then in Sturbridge, we're on 392 Main Street. Um, and that's the flagship. And then the one in um, Worcester we opened last September. But. I can't wait. I'm always on the hunt for good barbecue. So I'm excited to come down and try some of your stuff. Awesome. Uh, Got to get that brisket sandwich and that Southern burrito. I'm going to load up, take it yeah. with me, <laughs> fill a cooler and bring it back <laughs> to Portland with me, freeze some stuff. But uh, yeah, well, let, definitely let me, excited. let me know when you're coming. I'll, I'll meet you with some bourbon somewhere. For sure. All right. Thank yeah. you so much for taking the time to join us. We had a great conversation. Uh, I am excited to try it out and uh, you have a good night. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks Cheers. for having me to follow us on social at Uncorked Corner and on the blog at uncorkedcorner.com for a taste of more food and beverage content. 
And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave a comment, subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Thanks for listening.